only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. The beauty of the month of May is this, and that is that you get to a certain point throughout the course of practice for the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500 or in previous years, the 104th, the 103rd, whatever it might be. But when you are fortunate enough to be covering the event or even going to the track whether it be just simply or enjoying a track dog or having a cold beer or grabbing a soft drink and walking around, whatever it might be, you know you're in the thick of it when you completely lose track of what day of the week it is. And my name is Jake Query. That much I know. Brad Huber is on the board for us. That much I know. Mike Thompson joins me for Beyond the Bricks. That much I know. And Mike, I'll be honest, I think it's Wednesday, but it could be Thursday, right? I thought it was Thursday all day, actually. And you know how I knew you know how I knew it would finally figured out it was Wednesday was because every Wednesday, uh, Robin Miller's mailbag comes out right on racer.com. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to be on racer.com checking something and I saw Robin's, you know, they have that little caricature drawing or whatever that says it's, you know, it's time for his mailbag. And I thought, oh, it must be Wednesday because his 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 mailbag is up there. And that's the only reason I figured out somehow that it was Wednesday. So, you yeah, know, I, I lose track of days in this month for sure. I love anybody who knows their days of the week because of Robin Miller because Robin Miller is an Indianapolis treasure. There is no doubt about it. He's a national treasure, but he's an Indianapolis treasure for sure. Uh, good evening to you again. My name is Jake Quarry. That is the voice of Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks. And let's begin with, even though I know that uh, Kurt and Kevin just talked about the ongoings of today. Practice today, another good day of practice at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It got underway with R.C. Enerson completing his rookie orientation. He did so actually when practice was to begin at noon. R.C. Enerson still had a lap left to go. And so that carried over until about 11 minutes after noon, technically speaking. So they added extra time to the end of the practice session. So it went until 6.15. But a flurry of activity because over 2,700 total laps were turned. The fastest was Scott Dixon at 226.8 miles per hour. But, Mike, reality is this. Anytime that you are watching the feeds or listening to it or at the Speedway, whenever you get, as you did today, you know, 8 to 10 to 12 cars on the straightaway at the same time, all negotiating into the turns, and teammates that are working on different aero packages, meaning that they are intentionally running right next to one another or going down to the bottom line, there is a reason we come back every single year. Absolutely. And and for me today, it was a really kind of a throwback day. I had a few um, prior engagements today that kept me from going to the track and I wasn't able to watch on Peacock today. So I listened to you and Ryan on uh, IMS radio network. And then you followed up with, uh, with Mark and Nick today. So it was kind of a really cool throwback for me today. So I wasn't able to, to watch. And so I listened on the radio most of the day. So it was really kind of interesting listening to you guys and you guys did a great job uh, as always. And so I really enjoyed that. So 
I unfortunately did not get to see all the. Uh, I heard there was a lot of uh, a lot of passing and a lot of uh, you know really good running between the guys and 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 Simona today. But I unfortunately did not get to see really any of the of the track action. But I did get to keep up with everything that was happening because you guys did a fabulous job, and I especially enjoyed you and Ryan played the played a little trivia hour this morning or this afternoon, and I was enjoying the the trivia hour early in the day. You know, we had three hours to fill, so we had to get to oh, some yeah. trivia, right? Um, yeah, you got to get some trivia. And listen, and, I have a number of people, Mike, yourself included, that do a great job of keeping me abreast of different facts. Obviously, Donald Davidson, the 500 Media Factbook helps out with that. Scott Richards is unbelievable in providing information. But it is a lot of fun, and thank you for mentioning that. For those that are unaware, IndyCarRadio.com, and as well as XM Sirius, we are indeed uh, carrying all of the action on the IMS radio network for the practice sessions that will continue tomorrow and for Friday. But Can for I tonight- give a quick shout out, by the way, to Chris Pollock? Thank you, Chris Pollock, for, for you know, the director, the new director of the IMS radio network for you know, his vision in, in having all of the practice sessions, uh, this may be a lot of work for you. So maybe, you know, you may be uh, letting me handle this one by myself here, Jake, but uh, I really am happy that you guys are doing the, all the practice sessions live flag to flag. I mean, I, that's really, really great. I think for everybody uh, nationwide, worldwide, who's interested in the event. I well, mean, so I really, I really applaud what you guys are doing. I appreciate it, Mike. And as you know, it, you know, it's a lot of fun to do. And it is certainly any time that we are able to go up there in the booth, it is a pleasure. Um, and it is an honor to be able to do it. So I'm happy that you were able uh, to partake and that we were able to keep people informed of what was going on at 16th and Georgetown. One of the real thrills for me, by the way, um, also today that was great to see was even though we did not, obviously he was not on the air, but um, the chief announcer emeritus and in my opinion, one of the centralized key figures in the history of the distribution of information of great events at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and a man whose voice is synonymous with the track. Bob Jenkins came by today to um, take a visit to the Speedway and he came up to the booth and it was wonderful to see him because I think, you know, it is publicly known that Bob announced that he would be scaling back his public address duties here in the month of May during his journey with a cancerous brain tumor but he was at the track today and was soaking it in and went around and was greeted by several drivers. And uh, I did say to Bob, I said, Bob, I hope you are finally grasping now how much you are loved here and how big a part of this event you are. And he gave me uh, a smile and a nod, and it was great to see him. Uh, he is one of many who over the course of the years have become obviously great voices. There are few, if any, that would be better people than Bob Jenkins, but a lot of great people have been a part of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And tonight we're going to talk about one of them and one of them that I think might be as celebrated and as synonymous with the Speedway in terms of their tone and in terms of being the soundtrack for the great moments in Indianapolis Motor Speedway lore. And I was thinking about today as I was driving in, the thing about the Indianapolis 500, for those who may not grasp it, you know, I am 48 years old. The Indianapolis 500 and the month of May have been going on my entire lifetime. My mother 
of course, being from Indianapolis, and my father, even though he was born in Lafayette, being from Indianapolis, the Indianapolis 500 has taken place their entire lifetime, excluding, of course, the outset of their lifetime where World War II set things aside for a few years. My grandparents, the Indianapolis 500 ran during the entirety of both of my late grandparents, well, all four of my grandparents, my paternal grandparents as well, their lifetime. And that's what makes it so special is the fact that it is kind of passed down from one group to the next to the next. And when you find things that are stable, that are tradition, that are consistent throughout the generations of which I speak, that's what makes it even more special. And sometimes you find people or you find sounds or you find sights that are woven within that fabric that makes it something that is passed along from one to the next to the next. And when you find that coming from a person itself, that is in its own right magical. And especially when you think about the fact of the multi-generations, the number of different times that before the sun even rose when they had to be the first at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, this was the voice that greeted them. Good morning, everyone. Greeting you on behalf of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Thanking you for your attendance. That is the sound of a man who was born in the state of Connecticut and had a circuitous route throughout his childhood to a number of different places. Ultimately, for the most part, in his formidable adolescent years, Waterloo, Iowa. And then, in terms of a broadcasting career, Carl Kanegi, I assume that I'm saying that correct ended up in Kansas City, Missouri before finally coming to Indianapolis, Indiana by way of Fort Wayne. And we'll talk about how that all came to be. But it was in the mid-40s when one of his professors in college and one of his mentors where he was learning how to work with those dulcet tones and that incredible voice of his said to him, maybe you should change your name. Because who knows, in 2021, some may wonder whether or not your last name is pronounced Kennegy, Kennegy, whichever way it might be, Carl. And he said, that sounds like a decent idea. And so it is for that reason that by the time he was working at WoWo in Fort Wayne in 1942, just after graduating from college at William Jewell College, that he was known as Tom Carnegie and Mike there have been a lot of people that have blessed the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but very few of them have blessed it and been a part of the lore for all of us, like Tom Carnegie. Oh, I mean, what an incredible, incredible impact. I think it's in the fact that there were people, I know myself, one of them, We'll check back with Mike in just a second. I want to get back to talking about Tom Carnegie. We'll check the connection there. Um, you know, when when you talk about the Speedway, one of the things to me as a young person that that captivated me when I first went out there was sitting in the stands and listening. And whenever there would be a duel on the racetrack, and this was back before the days of the big jumbotron and you know the live video necessarily that was taking place. So I would sit in turn number two or a couple of years down by the paddock. And, of course, you had the long, like, I guess it would have been 
not an octagon, but the huge scoreboards that sat there between one and two that had, I think it was one through eight, the big lit up numbers. And you had to know the car numbers, you know, you had to know who was car number three and who was car number five in order to know the running order. And so you would sit and you would watch that and they would come past you and Carnegie leading up to it would tell you who was in the lead. He would tell you who was in the lead and who was chasing him down. Rick Mears in turn number one. Rick Mears, the leader. Al Unser Jr. closing in. And, and it created this anticipation. But the thing to me that was so magical was that you would hear Carnegie repeat it and he would repeat several times the same fact of what he was talking about. And he would repeat several times the same drama that he was witnessing. And when he did it, it intensified with each repeat the importance and the drama and the nail-biting nature of what it was that was happening on the racetrack. So instead of simply saying... Rick Mears has the lead and Al Unser Jr. is chasing him. It was Mears, here comes Al Unser, little Al closing in on Mears, Rick Mears. The lead. And each time he was saying it, it was escalating and escalating and escalating. And it wasn't until I was an older person and it wasn't until I had been around it a little bit and maybe even well past the age of when I should have had the understanding of it that I realized the brilliance of Tom Carnegie was that he figured out that when the track was running and all of the cars were on it, and especially after restarts when they were all packed together, that if it took 45 to 48 seconds for the field to do a lap or 50 seconds or whatever it might be, that the odds were very high that 25% of the audience couldn't hear a word he was saying because everybody was in front. The cars were all in front of where you were sitting. So if you were sitting in turn number two and he was talking about what was happening with Mears and Little Al, you couldn't hear any of it. So as they left turn two and then they go into turn three and he's still describing the action, and now for the first time you're hearing what it was. Well, that led to this incredible, intense rise of emotion everywhere else on the track, but in reality it was simply to make sure that everybody got the message and to re-rack it so that everybody understood and had an understanding of what was going on. And this was before the days of the Walkman radio and before the days of your live timing and scoring in the palm of your hand and before the days of the Jumbotron explaining and accentuating and complimenting the voice that was coming over that public address. And rather, it was a man with an incredible voice who was on television working as a sports director at WRTV, ABC affiliate here in Indianapolis, and, and, you know, not the ABC affiliate the entire time, but later in his career. It was that man's voice that was keeping tabs of what was going on for all of the people around the Oval, and he was explaining these stories unfolding before him. But what we now know, of course, and what people knew at the time is that he himself had a story that was fascinating. And that's the story we tell tonight when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Back in downtown Indianapolis on Monument Circle, as a matter of fact, at Emma's headquarters, Jake Query here with Beyond the Bricks along with Mike Thompson talking about a man who 75 years ago first came to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with his dulcet tones, the public address announcer, for IMS, the voice of the track, Tom Carnegie, who, as I had mentioned, went to school at 
grew up actually and, and, and did the better part of his adolescence in Iowa. He lived a number of different places. But ultimately, he was educated from a collegiate standpoint at William Jewell College. Now, he had grown up listening to radio and listening to sports on the radio. And, Mike, I think one of the things that it is easy for, and I hate to say this on this medium, but, you know, I don't know that people understand, like, especially, like, say, in the 30s and the 40s, the marriage that sports had and the escalation of stars how how stardom rose for people, you know, athletes in particular, because of radio, because it forced people to create in their minds this imagery of what they were hearing described. And so, therefore, the athletes they were listening to, they were creating in their mind almost a superhero-like imagery in their in their vision of what they were hearing described on the radio. And truth be told, that also carried over into many of those who were describing the action themselves being larger-than-life type figures. Tom Carnegie is one of those that falls into that category. Oh, definitely. I'm, I mean, the guys on radio, it was all theater of the mind, right? So you you, you became – you're sitting there thinking, okay, what is I, – I mean, I go back to Sid Collins and, and uh, you know, Paul Page is my point of reference on this, but, you know, I – I was wondering, what do these cars look like? What do you know? What what was when you when I specifically I'm thinking about Danny Sullivan's spin, you know. So what was that when when they were calling that amazing spin, and you didn't get to see that live, and then you were waiting that until that night to see it on on the tape delay broadcast, the way they made that sound, it did sound superhuman, right? So then that night, you couldn't wait to see. Okay, what was this that they were describing? Because it was such an unbelievable call on the radio. And so back in the 30s, you're especially right. I mean, you know, think about how, you know, guys like, you know, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig and and all these guys in the in the uh, in the early days of radio were just built up. And you're right. The 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 radio announcers themselves became stars. And, you know, that's that's where, you know, guys like Graham McNamee and, and some of these other guys became, you know, huge, huge stars. And it, it really it really propelled the medium. And, you know, that's where, you know, we got we were lucky to get Sid Collins, obviously. And, and Sid Sid became as well known to the world as many of the drivers. I mean, I think a, a lot of places around the world, if you would have said, uh, what do you know about the Indianapolis 500? They, they might not have been able to name one or two drivers, but they certainly probably could have named Sid Collins because he was the voice of the 500 on radio. So in 1946, Tom Carnegie, who in his senior year in high school had his athletic career essentially shelved because of a diagnosis with polio, which caused Tom Carnegie to lose strength in his legs something that if you saw Carnegie in his later years at the racetrack, you noticed because he would oftentimes be on a scooter or you would see him, you know, walking. You could tell that he had had polio as a young person. So he channeled his love for sports into broadcasting, partially because he grew up listening to exactly as Mike was talking about, that magic of radio and the pictures being painted by none other than one of his favorite broadcasters, Ronald Reagan who he would listen to calling baseball games and other such things. So Carnegie got into the world of sportscasting, and eventually it led him to WoWo, which is a huge station in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Then he came to Indianapolis to work at, w, at WIRE, the radio station. 
And in 1945, he was working in Indianapolis. Tony Holman had just bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Mike, the one thing that I think that oftentimes it's easy to forget is that when Tony Holman bought the Speedway, it was coming off of World War II when it had been neglected and it needed life pumped into it. So Tony Holman is looking for any avenue he can to bring it back to life. But if you could real quick, give us a synopsis of the condition of the track that Tony Holman purchased coming off of World War II. Oh, it was it was an absolute mess. I mean, it was terribly dilapidated. I mean, there were weeds growing in between the bricks. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the structures were in terrible ramshackle shape. Um, and that's what really led Wilbur Shaw to find somebody to save it because, you know, he knew if somebody didn't step in fairly quickly, uh, this was probably going to go away permanently because it was really on the, the cusp of, I mean, I mean, the nature was taking over here. And if somebody didn't step in and soon um, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as it would cease to exist. And, and Wilbur Shaw, uh, somebody who loved the Speedway, had obviously won three times, a Hoosier himself, uh, you know, he didn't obviously want to see that happen. So he at first wanted to buy the Speedway himself, and that, that plan didn't work out. Uh, so he needed to find somebody who was a visionary uh, who could see, you know, what the Speedway could become. And what what I have always found fascinating about what Wilbur and Tony did was they didn't take a dilapidated Speedway that was in terrible condition and just merely bring it back to what it was prior to the Second World War. They made it even better. And, and it was Tony Holman's vision and Wilbur Shaw and, 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 you know, they were, they were inseparable working on this project together and, you know, Wilbur and Tony brought it back. But one of the things that, you know, Wilbur Shaw did was he, he heard a guy, and I think we're going to hear that story here in a second. He heard a guy at a, at an antique car show and he thought, Hey, this guy might be uh, somebody that we could use at our, our newly you know, re reconstituted speedway for our events. And uh, the rest is certainly history as far as that guy's concerned. It happened at an antique car road or an antique car show in Memorial Day weekend of 1945. Wilbur Shaw is there looking at cars. He hears an announcer and he thinks to himself, this might work. Here's how Tom Carnegie recalls that happening in that chance encounter. It was uh, a tour of antique automobiles. And Tony Oman, the new owner, and Wilbur Shaw, the president, three-time winner, came up to me and asked me if I'd be interested in working race day. I said, sure. So they put me atop that old pagoda with you wavering in the wind up there. Very little information. I just had to live my way through it. And what's interesting about that, Mike, is that oftentimes in life, sometimes, you know, I remember David Letterman once saying that bravery is the ultimate thing, but sometimes it's okay to fake bravery. And and perhaps that works for knowledge as well. And I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form to discredit the knowledge of a Tom Carnegie, but by his own admission in the early years, he didn't necessarily know anything about the 
the race itself and what he was seeing. And as a matter of fact, he said it took him, I think, five to ten years to feel totally comfortable in being able to explain and elaborate on what he was witnessing, whether it be in the pits or in the turns or the strategies that were taking place. But for a guy that wasn't himself completely comfortable from the get-go, that is the proverbial duck to water in the way that his voice absolutely reverberated off the aluminum and off the wood of that facility and bringing it to life for everyone. Well, what's interesting to me is that he basically, he's admitted, he basically had a, a list of the card, you know, numbers and the list of the driver names. And that's basically at the time, that's all he knew about racing. He, uh, he went up there, like you said, and he had to essentially what we say in the business, he had to wing it. He had to create this theater. Um, and, and he, you know, he's well known for kind of creating this, uh, this term of, you know, what I do is speed theater as you were talking about earlier. And he basically created that because he, he just, he didn't know that much about the sport. And so on the fly over about a five, 10 year period, he got comfortable doing it. And, you know, we think about all the changes he saw. I mean, the, the, the pole speed in 1946 was in the, you know, the 130, 135 mile an hour, 135 mile an hour range. Right. And by the end of his career, he's, you know, he's, you know, he had called a, you know, a speed with Ari a hundred miles an hour faster than that, you know, so he, he saw it all and, you know, did an amazing job, you know, creating it. And, and I think earlier when my microphone cut out, what I was saying is, you know, you're important when people stop what they're doing just to hear your sound checks, right? Whether you're Mick Jagger or, or Bono from U2 or whatever your you know, whatever musical artist you want to name, people would do that. Tom Carnegie would get on the microphone in the morning at uh, you know on poll day, and all he'd be doing is a sound check, and people would literally stop in their tracks because Tom Carnegie was saying something and telling you something, and there was just this booming voice from above over the public address system. And if Tom Carnegie's saying something, it's probably pretty important, so you better stop in your tracks and listen to what he has to say. And one of the things that he did, and again, not unlike when I was talking about as he would describe and repeat the action and build the suspense, that was out of necessity. So too was Carnegie's delay, if you will, in building up and awaiting for the speed. So as people went to the racetrack on practice days or qualifying days, notably on qualifying days, and a driver would come off of turn number four and they'd cross the yard of bricks, this was not the era where you had instant computer gratification of telling you instantly what the speed and the time was. There was someone who was timing the lap, and there was someone else who was calculating that time and transferring it into an average miles per hour. But as opposed to simply waiting for it and then saying, here's the speed, Carnegie was the master of theater, of building the suspense, not only for himself simply waiting for the mathematician to give him the speed, but building it, as up, building it up as if he was waiting for the speed because he was waiting for the unveiling of something that no one could possibly imagine. And then eventually that meant waiting for that time might mean that he was announcing a speed that had never been heard before. And, of course, his extremely familiar call of it's a new track 
record, which people would go crazy over. Here's Tom Carnegie on the origin of that phrase. I began to realize, yeah, you know, I'd taken place in theater and plays and things like that. And you don't want a long sentence uh, at a racetrack. You need a few words to, to put it across what you're trying to say and words you can repeat. And they're just my style. Did you I don't say, ladies and gentlemen, everyone, uh, this looks like a new track record, but we'll check it. And yes, it is. And I just come out with it and say, it's a new track record. Or out of the fourth turn and onto the straightaway. All you got time for is three or four words. And repeat. The reason you repeat is because all the way around the track, they'll hear it at some some place then. But one of the great things about being a public address announcer and having the versatility of it is just like anything else in that era, whether it be Walter Cronkite, for example, when people are listening to you describe something, it creates an intimacy between the person who's talking and the person who is digesting what is being said. And that develops a relationship and a trust. And people began to trust Tom Carnegie. He was the voice that they were going to hear. He was the consistency of their soundtrack. He was the accentuation of their trip to IMS. But it wasn't always about talking of things that were of joy. And that's where the trust in the professionalism comes in. Because there were times, unfortunately and tragically, that Tom Carnegie had to be the bearer of news that was not exciting. But he did so in a fashion that continued to be accepted and trusted by the fans. This was Tom Carnegie after the tragedy in 1964 involving Dave McDonald and Eddie Sachs in the Indianapolis 500. It is with deepest regret that we make this announcement. Driver Eddie Sachs was fatally injured in the accident on the main straightaway. The simplicity, Mike, in which he spoke, those words that unfortunately people in the stands were not stunned to hear because of the images that they had seen, but it's important to have someone making that declaration for people to be able to absorb it that they knew. And the ultimate compliment to Tom Carnegie is the fact that the 200,000 plus or whatever it may be and that arena, so to speak, or at the Speedway, were getting the news that they didn't want to hear, but they were getting it from someone that it came with a compassion in the way he delivered it because it was the dichotomy of the way in which he did things. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. It, and your Walter Cronkite comparison, I think, is really well uh I think that's right because you know you go back to how Walter Cronkite delivered the news about you know President Kennedy's assassination and he and he chokes up briefly, takes his his eyeglasses off for a second, delivers that news and then and then goes on with the rest of the bulletin, and and Tom Carnegie you know read that bulletin that he had to deliver in a very straightforward uh, way deliver the news he had to deliver that he he knew the fans needed to know and the announcement needed to be made uh did it in an extremely professional way and you hear the respect from the crowd if you listen to that broadcast because 
when Tom Carnegie makes that announcement, there's not a soul speaking. I mean, you could you have hundreds of thousands of people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and there's the only sound you can hear is the blimp overhead. That there's no other sound. And that's the respect that folks would have for Tom Carnegie when he would come on the public address system, especially in this situation. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he, like you said, he was there for us in times of joy for a new track record or for when, you know, a driver would make the Indianapolis 500 for the first time. And he was also there for us in times of tragedy as well. And he was there in times when there was awfully, awfully exciting action to call. And that's what we will visit and hear. Tom Carnegie on the mic for some of the great moments at IMS. That's next on Beyond the Bricks. Meet Roger Menske, head of the Menske Racing Team. As you can see, I've got to get things done fast. That's why I use First National City Traveler's Checks. Because if I lose them, I can get a refund fast wherever I go. You're the only one with 45,000 on-the-spot refund spots worldwide. Thousands more than any other kind. Go! next vacation trip don't get caught waiting get first national city travelers checks the world's fastest travelers check little known fun fact roger pinsky bought the indianapolis motor speedway with a bunch of first national city travelers checks that he had accumulated from his ad in 1976 jake query here along with mike thompson this is beyond the bricks would like to say hello to tony laporta our friend who is driving he says out to kansas for the usac events out there and listening to the program Tony, we appreciate it. Hopefully uh, you'll enjoy being so close to your home state of Colorado. Travel safe, and we appreciate you listening tonight. We were talking about how Tom Carnegie had an understanding of the theater and a, a grasp of how to build anticipation to describe what was happening. But in 1982, sometimes the events are so strong and so dynamic that they don't necessarily even need that compliment. But it still happens, and it happens organically sometimes, spontaneously. Rick Mears was chasing down Gordon Johncock. Gordon Johncock had a lightning-fast pit stop late in the race. He had a multi-second advantage over Rick Mears, but with each lap, Mears shaved it closer, closer, and closer. It is, of course, one of the most famous moments in the history of the Indianapolis 500, the nearly almost photo finish. It was a photo finish between Gordon Johncock and Rick Mears side by side as Gordon Johncock got his second Indianapolis 500 win. And Tom Carnegie at the moment was the one credited with determining just exactly how close it was. But did he have a stopwatch or was Carnegie going back to that old theater background? Here is the great Tom Carnegie talking about what happened in that 82 finish. This was uh, Rick Mears was driving for Roger Penske, and he was chasing, who's a driver from Michigan, Gordon Johncock. Gordy was leading, and um, 10 laps to go, he was at a lead of 10 seconds. Everybody was getting, you know, on edge and standing, and I was loving it. Nine laps, nine seconds, eight laps, eight seconds. Get down, and Gordy Johncock won the race just by a fraction. And everybody cheering, and I was carried away, and I couldn't think of anything to say except, you know, it's a new track record. So I had to verify it. So I called timing and scoring, and they said, well, we don't have that information for you. 
So I said, okay, talk to my friend George King, who was working next to me. I said, how does 1600 uh, seconds sound to you? And he says, go with it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, attention, everyone, it's a new track record, 1600 of a second. After it was all over and the enthusiasm has died, I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? I've set a record, you know. And then I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to admit that. The next morning, there's a headline in the Indianapolis Star. It says, John Cock, by 1,600 of a second, new track record, or words to that effect. And I felt justified then. And I didn't really tell that story till 10 years later when uh, that 1600 second was broken by Allinger Jr. and, and uh, his competitor. That By that time, they got the information to me. and It was, I don't know, I'll say 32 thousandths of a second or something. And as George was still sitting there, and I said, yep, there goes our record. Now, the beauty of it, as Tom Carnegie mentions there, is it goes back to kind of the authoritative nature, if you will. The fact that if Tom Carnegie's saying it, then it has to be true, right? If Tom Carnegie is saying, well, it was 16 one-hundredths of a second, then it had to be 16 one-hundredths of a second. What's interesting, Mike, if you read the official Indianapolis Motor Speedway factbook, Top five closest margins of victory. 1982, Gordon Johncock over Rick Mears. 16 one-hundredths of a second. But it wasn't always in 1982, for example. Carnegie didn't have to necessarily turn around and just say, does this sound good to you? Sometimes things were just so darn exciting that Carnegie talking about it That simply was the hot fudge on the top of the Sunday because it was just so darn exciting as it was. Like in 1983, a year later at the start of the race. Man, I loved when he would repeat that safely through the first turn. I would wait so, so anxiously to hear whether or not the field was safely through turn number one. There were so many things about the 500 that was so great, but track historian Donald Davidson knows one of those things that made it so great and built that love that so many had was, in fact, Tom Carnegie. I would say that that probably Tom Carnegie, more than anybody else, is responsible for the way the crowds grew in the 50s and 60s. And uh, certainly 
there was a lot going on and there was innovation and, and track records being broken, but it was that phenomenal voice telling you about it. Now, Mike, let me, in the final two minutes that we have here, illuminate something to people as we take a look at Tom Carnegie tonight. And again, it goes by so quick. But for those that don't know, today at about 5 o'clock, I was walking around down on Pit Lane, and I sent you a text that said, what do you want to do tonight on the show? And I had an idea. I don't even remember what it was now. And you wrote back and said, what if we do a tribute to Tom Carnegie? Now, this was three and a half hours ago, basically. And I said, what kind of audio do you have? And you said, let me see what I can come up with. I don't know, Mike, that it's possible to illustrate for people here with the reverence that I have for Tom Carnegie what an incredible, incredible gift it is to have access to somebody who not only has that kind of audio of somebody so legendary, but has the willingness and the understanding to be able in under four hours to put that together. That's incredible. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And and uh, when we, we were very lucky to come up with something so cool today, and, and you said, hey, what do you want to do? And it just popped in my head. I said, hey, why don't we think about let's do Tom Carnegie tonight. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that you appreciate the work I do for finding the audio. And it's a, definitely a labor of love. I love finding the audio, and I love bringing the clips to the folks at home because it's it's something that I absolutely love doing. Well, so. the manner in which you were able to do it tonight and the manner in which the time flew in talking about Tom Carnegie, simply put, was a new track record. And we're going to do the same thing tomorrow night on another subject. We'll do it in just about 23 hours, which means about 21 hours from now, Mike, I will actually send you a text and figure out what we're going to do. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Let me know. All right. Sounds good. For Brad Huber here running the board, for Mike Thompson, my name is Jake Query. Tomorrow, practice noon till 6, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And then tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, another edition of Beyond the Bricks. Thanks for listening.